Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Um, it can be scary to try to share your faith sometimes. Uh, sometimes people ask you questions and you get stuck. How to answer? Uh, sometimes you're not even sure how to maneuver the conversation. Well, that's what my guest here today is going to be talking to you about. We're going to be talking about his book Tactics. My guest today is Greg Kokel. He's a Christian apologist. He's the host of the Stand to Reason podcast. Uh, he's an author, speaker, and he's the founder of the Christian apologetics organization Stand to Reason. And we're going to be talking about his book, Tactics. It's, has, it has helped many young budding apologists, including myself, and it recently had a new 10th anniversary edition published. So mm-hmm. it's good to have you on the podcast. Hey, I'm glad to talk with you, Evan. I love talking about tactics. Um, it It's helped me tremendously over the years, and I'm glad to pass some things on to help your listeners as well. Yeah, and uh, I I remember reading this book for the first time in like uh, maybe 2013 or 2014, um, back when I was still relatively new to apologetics, and it it really really helped me. And uh, mm-hmm. my I some of my conversations, if I hadn't used say the Colombo tactic, which is you know the <laughs> one I get the most mileage out of, right? I I would have gotten stuck. I would have just yeah. been like. You know, okay, time to get off the forum, time to get off the, the thread, <laughs> or if it's in real life, time to turn yeah. around and walk away. Well, this but, is uh, it, yeah, this it's been really is, helpful. This is why I tell people when I give a talk, I just did to 1,200 young people, uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers in Minneapolis last weekend at one of our big reality conferences where we're passing the baton essentially to the next generation. When I spoke on this issue, I made them a promise. I said, I'm going to give you a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter how little you know or how knowledgeable or aggressive or even obnoxious the other person happens to be. And it's very simple. It's very straightforward, at least the basic game plan. It has three steps to it, and we'll talk about that a little bit. But the first two steps, it's a kind of a way of getting into the shallow end of the pool, so to speak, that anyone can use this. And uh, in the 50 minutes or 60 minutes that I had with the students, I was able to give them an introductory session that was all they needed to get rolling. And Evan, I found what you said, that uh, it's it's made it so much easier for me to navigate in conversations that would otherwise be really challenging. And characteristically, this is the way people have responded to me when I've seen them and talked to them a little bit, and they've given me feedback about the book. I just happened to check on Amazon just now. I have almost 1,100 reviews of the latest edition of the book that just came out last year. So just in one year, I got 1,100. The average is 4.9. I mean, I, I mean, the only thing left is a perfect five, which nobody's going to get that. I am so satisfied to see 
how um, people have responded to this um, and how how it's helped them to do the very thing that you just described a moment ago, and that's navigate in what otherwise would be very tough conversations. Oh, yeah, that's that's really awesome that you got that many uh, that many um, four star reviews on the newest edition in one year. It's I'd actually like to, mostly like five stars. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's mostly five stars. And you got a couple of outliers, so it pulls it down to 4.9 average. Yeah. So uh, just missed the, you know, perfect fives. But in any event. Yeah. Before we start talking about the individual uh, tactics that you cover in your book, what inspired you to write this book? Like, what was the what was the light bulb moment? Like, I remember when I wrote my first book, I. I was doing I was thinking about the topic and I was doing the dishes and I was like, yes, this is this is I, sh- I should do a, I should do a book on this. A gr- great place to get an idea while doing the dishes. Um, I I never had a light bulb moment, uh, Evan, though I think that happens for a lot of people. Uh, in my case, what happened is I, after 47 years of being a Christian, starting as a, a young adult, 23 years old, at UCLA when I became a Christian in 1973, and engaging others on uh, the claims of Christ and the Christian worldview uh, over and against all these other ideas that are out there nowadays and are really popular, Um I I just kind of slowly morphed into a habit of using certain techniques. And uh, so I began teaching on them and I'd I'd have a handful of these things and I'd talk about them. And and you know how it is. You start talking about an idea you have and the more you talk about it, the better formed it gets in your mind and the better defined it gets for you. And so uh, this is what happened in my case. And as time went on, I realized I'd kind of developed a – a, a system of maneuvers that I was using in a very particular way in conversations with people that made it easier for me. And so um, when I thought, well, maybe I should make this into a talk, which was uh, Craig Hazen, actually the director of the apologetics program at Talbot or Biola, um, the master's degree in apologetics there, Craig Hazen, um, suggested I, I do a talk, and he hired me to do a talk for uh, a master's program, graduate program he was involved in at the time before Biola. And so that was the first time I actually put it together in a more organized way. And every time I gave it, it kind of got a little bit more robust. And uh, then uh, t- over 10 years ago, 11 years ago, I decided to write a book on it. And that's when kind of the the whole nature of a game plan came into came into play for me. It just coalesced. Not a aha moment, but a little here, a little there, and it formed itself. And even 10 years after I wrote the book, when I started working on uh, on the 10-year anniversary, which I just thought I'd freshen it up a little bit, you know, and uh, we get another marketing push, I ended up putting about 35 or 40 percent more material into it. I doubled the number of tactics, and I developed a notion that I call gardening that to me is really, really essential in the approach to doing um, – apologetics, if you will, um, using the game plan that I suggest, the tactical approach. So it's just a process over time for me, Evan, and, uh, and, and I'm very, very excited about how it's all developed. I really, really think that these are the tools that are going to make a big difference um, in people's lives, and this is what they're feeding back to me, just like you did. Yeah. So, so let's, uh, let's talk about that, that first tactic 
the in your book the Columbo tactic. Yeah. Uh, first, why is it called that? Uh, what is it, and what are some situations uh, in which this can be helpful? Yeah. Okay, uh, let me make a request, though. It's your show, and I'll do whatever you want. But I um, I wanted to talk a little bit about a concept that precedes the game plan proper, which includes the Columbo tactic, that I think I want people to understand so they're more effective at using the game plan. Would that be all right with you? Oh, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Um, here's a statement that I want, to pe- I want your listeners to take note of because it's really important and it has to do with harvesting and we think of evangelism as a harvest we are harvesting we are helping people to receive christ we are in a sense closing the deal that's what the harvest is you have the fruit you put it in the basket okay here's the statement i want people to think about before there can be any harvest there always has to be a season of gardening Okay, let me say it again because it's so important. It's really obvious, like, no, duh. Before there can be a harvest, there has to be a season of gardening. But when I think about the application of that principle, which is an obvious principle, even for evangelism, when I think about the application for us as Christians, I realize that most of what we do in evangelism, most of the training is harvest training. Here's how you share the simple gospel, and here's how you, you invite somebody to receive Christ. But frankly, most people are not in harvest condition. <laughs> you know, people out there, they're not in harvest condition. We have a wide, wide variety of people out there. <clears throat> and Jesus said in John chapter four, some sow and some reap. All right. Some people do the harvesting, but you can't have a harvest unless there's somebody doing the sowing. And the sowing takes time. And especially in our culture, it takes a lot of time. All right. So the way this influenced me as I started thinking about it, is first of all, I realized that I don't lead a lot of people to Christ. I don't pray with lots of people to receive Christ. I'm not really an evangelist in that sense, or maybe a better way of putting it is I'm not a harvester. I'm a gardener. When I think of what I do in the university I've spoken at, and a lot of them, 80 or plus now. Are you still there? <clears throat> I am. Oh, okay. You went silent there for a minute. You froze up. Okay, sorry. I, I, I was afraid we lost connection. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, as you were. But when I think about all the things that I do, I realize I'm a gardener. I'm out there gardening, gardening, gardening. I'm not inviting people to receive Christ, all right? However, I know people that were in my garden that are now a very well-known apologist. In other words, they were listening to my radio show when they were atheists. Uh, the name Jay Warner Wallace comes to mind, if any of your listeners know who wow. that is. Uh, so Jim Wallace, he was an atheist listening to our show before he became a Christian. And in the way he did it was by using his detective skills. He's a cold case detective to apply to the Gospels, realize that the good eyewitness of reports, became a Christian, became an apologist, became a best-selling Christian author. Cold case Christianity, God's crime scene, forensic faith. Etc. Etc. Okay, Jim was in my garden. Okay, when he was still an atheist, or Abdul Murray, who uh, right now is the senior vice president for RZIM, but he used to be a Muslim in Detroit as an attorney, wondering whether Christianity was really true. And Abdul was in my garden. Now I didn't play with pray with either of them to become Christians. I didn't harvest them. I gardened them. 
Okay, and I'm not the only one. I'm sure a lot of other people do. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is because I think a lot of your most of your listeners are not harvesters. Most of your listeners are gardeners, but they don't know how to garden. They only know how to harvest because that's the only thing that has been taught them. Here's how you present the simple gospel. And here's a little booklet that will help you. Now, I'm not against the booklets, but I'm just emphasizing. I'm pointing out that's harvesting. And most people you talk to are not ready for the harvest. Sometimes, yes, but most of the times, no. So what I'm inviting people to do is thinking about is to think about themselves as gardeners and with a goal. This is an important part of it, not to get to the close, not to get to the sign on the dotted line part, pray the prayer, but rather to do some gardening. And the way I characterize that is I just want to put a stone in someone's shoe. Okay. Now that's in the book. All right. And you're chuckling because this is the phrase that a lot of people remember. Okay. And in fact, last weekend, speaking to 1200 students on the big stage in Minneapolis at a massive church there, I told the folks, I said, some of you people are here, not Christians, you're skeptics, you're tire kickers, whatever. I want you to know that we are not here this weekend with this conference to convert you. We have a different goal. We just want to annoy you in a good way. We just want to put a stone in your shoe. We want to get you thinking. And see, that's the way I go about all my engagements, Evan. I don't know how far I'm going to get in a conversation, but if I have it as a goal to try to say something that will get them thinking in a productive way about Christianity or Christ or the gospel, or maybe thinking in a critical way of their own view that's getting in the way of them thinking about the gospel, I'm a happy camper. If I can put that stone in their shoe, I'm happy. And so I am committed to gardening because I know it takes a whole team to garden and that God is the one in charge of the process. Jesus, when he says one sows, the other reaps, and he tells the disciples there in John 4, you are about to reap where you did not sow. He's identifying one field, in that case, Sychar, John 4, in Samaria, He one, one team the body of Christ, but two kinds of workers working two different seasons. Okay, sowers sowing during sowing season, or in my terminology, gardeners gardening. And reapers are harvesting, or harvesters during that season. Since the harvest is easy when the fruit is ripe, you bump into it, it falls into the basket. It's simple when the fruit's ripe. We all know this when we think about it. The hard part is in the gardening. And unless we have good gardening, we're not going to have a good harvest. It's that simple. There's a lot of people who are focused on harvesting and don't feel comfortable with that, even though they're giving these tools to harvest. And so they sit on the bench. And I want to give them a tool to garden, get off the bench and get into play. And that's where the tactical game plan comes in. Yeah. And I have I have this agnostic that's been uh, visiting the Cerebral Faith blog, Facebook page, and YouTube channel, and we've been dialoguing for years, like two and a half years, on a whole diff- a whole bunch of different topics. Uh, I've been I've been gardening, watering him uh, for a long time, and I hope that someday I I can harvest him, or if I don't do it, someone else does. And, that's right. Um, you know we, gosh, I don't know how many conversations we've had. We've 
we've talked about the contingency argument for God. We've talked about the ontological argument. We've had like four different discussions on the moral yeah. argument, the problem of evil. Just we just everything over the past two and a half years. Um, it's been I've I've really really enjoyed it. But yeah, I'm I'm a harvester, and I think a lot of I mean um. I'm a gardener, and uh, not a harvester, a gardener. I think most people are. I have harvested a little bit, three or four people, but most like you, I haven't really brought. I'm sure. not. I'm. I'm not like a Billy Graham. Well, I want to also legitimize gardening and see a lot of folks just because of the tradition that we've received, Evan, feel like you're not really doing evangelism or you're not effective at it if you're not winning people to Christ. You're not getting decisions. And um, that could be a bummer to people, and this discourages them. And my point is, there are two seasons, and there are two kinds of workers in the body of Christ, and you are likely not a harvester. And here's how you can tell, by the way, um, if people who are listening to what I'm saying, and I'm suggesting that there's a harvest element that you could participate in without worrying about, I'm sorry, there's a gardening element. I did the same thing you just did. If there's a gardening element that's important that we can participate in without having to worry about the harvesting, that's somebody else's job. If you're thinking that and you're kind of feeling inside, Oh, that's great. I never heard that before. Oh, I have a way out. I can I can participate without that other thing getting in the way where well, that's because you're probably a gardener for goodness sake. Now, if somebody's listening to this and you're bugged at me and you're thinking, "Wait, are you telling me that I don't have to tell people after receive Christ and try to get them to do so?" Yeah, that is what I'm telling you because Jesus didn't do that in every conversation that he had. Jesus gardened most of the time, okay? Frankly, the Jesus harvest came in Acts 2 and 4. You know, that's when the big harvest came. He was gardening and the disciples harvested, all right? Um, so uh, if you're bugged at what you're, you're probably a harvester, okay? And that's a good way to tell the, tell the difference. And uh, when people realize that gardening is a legitimate part and critical part of the process they're going to be happy to get off the bench and into play a little bit if they have the tools to do it and that kind of brings us to the question that you first asked that i've taken this detour uh from before answering it and that is the game plan proper okay so on to the colombo tactic okay uh, how, well what is what's that about what is that how can it, how can it be helpful to our listeners Okay, well, I you're a younger guy, so I suspect you're drawing a younger audience. I'm an old guy, and so we got a lot of older people. And we remember Lieutenant Colombo from uh, about 40 years ago on TV. He's a he's a a detective that um, is a, a a murder case detective who shows up at the crime scene with an old trench coat, looks like he slept in it, uh, ruffled hair, a stub of a cigar, a paper pad, you know, but he, but he can't use his paper pad because he didn't bring a pencil. He's got to bum a pencil off of somebody, you know, and he's, and, and this guy walks around like he, he, he can't think his way out of a wet paper bag. I mean, this guy's stupid, but he's stupid like a fox because he's got a plan. At some point, he's going to stop. And he's going to put his fingers to furrowed brow, you know, like he's deep in painful thought and say something like, I don't know, just something about this thing bothers me. Do you mind if I ask you a question? Right. And he asks a question. 
And then he comes back and asks some more and some more and some more. And he's always scratching his head like he doesn't know what's going on, but he is smart and he's collecting the information that he needs so he can find the killer. All right. Which he always does in every movie is Hollywood. So it always works out. Okay. Um, but that's, that's what actually the Columbo character um, captures the essence of the game plan. Now, I thought about the game plan before, but I was trying to think of how could I characterize it that it would be memorable. The game plan is a question-asking game plan. That's why I call it Columbo. And plus, I can put this the uh, trench coat on and get my plastic cigar out and <laughs> walk across stage <laughs> and do my Columbo in imitation for audiences, and it makes it memorable. Even if, like a long, young crowd, they've never seen Columbo on TV before. He's still on Nick at Night and YouTube. You can find him if you want to. In any event, the Columbo tactic then is the simplest tactic imaginable. It's one of a number of tactics but in the book, but it is the core tactic that represents the game plan that the other tactics serve. Okay, And um, the, the, the game plan uses questions in a very particular way. Okay, it's the simplest tactic imaginable to stop a challenger in his tracks to turn the tables to put you in the driver's seat of the conversation, which is, by the way, where you want to be. Um, Doesn't mean you're doing all the talking. In fact, you're doing less of the talking, but you're directing the conversation in a way that you think might be productive. How do you do that? You do that by the questions that you ask. Now, here's a good example. Evan, you and I are talking. You're doing an interview. You're relaxed. You're composed. You're not sweating because you're not working. I'm doing all the heavy lifting, right? But you are the one who's in control of the conversation because I am following largely the questions that you ask me. So you're directing things. You're directing things by the questions that you ask. And that's the power of the questions, okay? broadly in principle. Now, the game plan has has three different uh, steps to it, if you will. Easy to keep track of three, but there's only two steps that are required for someone to begin using it. And this is the way I usually teach it to beginners. In other words, I'm going to give beginners a way to get into the shallow end of the pool. And the promise I make, and I'm not sure if I gave you this or not, because I just came off another interview like this, and I, maybe I said it then but not here. But the promise I make to them is I'm going to give them a game plan that will allow them to converse with confidence no matter how little they know, in any situation, by the way, no matter how little they know or how knowledgeable or aggressive or even obnoxious the other person happens to be. So, And, and it's this using questions. Now, think about it. If you if a person finds himself completely outmatched by some brilliant person who believes something totally different than they do, can you just just imagine how if you ask a question, you can have a conversation with that person and there is no pressure on you when you're doing that person says, well, I don't believe what you believe. I'm an atheist. Oh, really? What kind of atheists are you? I mean, there are lots of different kinds of atheists. Some folks don't realize that, but uh, you Christians don't always agree on everything. Well, the fact is atheists don't always agree on everything. So there's a wide variety of thinking. But what am I doing? I'm just 
tossing the ball back in their court, and I'm trying to learn more about them and their views. Now, that is the very first step of the game plan. This is very important for your listeners to get, Evan, because um, it's we have been instructed in, in, in implicitly to be thinking about what's going on down the line. Okay, how are we going to get this person to come to Christ? What I'm wa- I want to tell people to do is forget about that. Now, do I want them to come to Christ? Sure. But but uh, that's down there. It's just like a, a football team wants to win the Super Bowl. Okay, that's at the end of the game. At the beginning of the game is a kickoff. You better do that right or you're not going to win at the end of the game. You know, you better execute every play right. You can't be thinking down the line. You got to be thinking about what you're dealing with in front of you. And by the way, Paul has a really good um, exhortation regarding this. It's in Colossians chapter three. No, Colossians chapter four, verse five and six. It's four, five, six. There you go. Chapter four, verse five and six. And here's what he says. He says, conduct yourself with wisdom towards outsiders. Okay, making the most of the opportunity. So there's a good start. He says, be smart. Then he says, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt. Okay, that's good, too. First, be smart, then be nice. But then he says, so that you know how to respond to each person. Be smart. Be nice, but be tactical. Be alert to that individual circumstance. And that's what the tactical game plan allows you to do. Okay, so um, how? what are like some situations in which asking questions can kind of guide the conversation uh, where it would otherwise be um, – you would otherwise run into a wall? Yeah, okay, excellent question. So um, – the first step of the game plan uh, of the three steps, the first step is just to gather information. I've already intimated that. You want to get a lay of the land. So how do you get the lay of the land? Well, you get lay of the land by asking a certain kind of question. Okay. And the questions that you're asking at the beginning is just to figure out what's going on. All right. You may be asking questions if it's a total stranger to get to know a little bit about them just because you're being friendly. Um, If you're already engaged in something spiritual, then uh, then you want to ask questions to get more information about the issue that you're discussing more from the other person. All right. And um, and I'll give you the model question. Then I'll look. I'll show you how it applies in the kinds of circumstances you were just asking about. The model first question to gather information is what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Now, it's a very, very simple question and it's very flexible. Uh, The book in the book, I talk about a conversation I had with a witch in Wisconsin who is wearing a pentagram around her neck. And I asked her, does your jewelry have religious significance for you? And she said, yes, I'm a pagan. And then off we went, you know, into a conversation. I showed an interest in her asking the question, what do you mean by that jewelry? Essentially, she began to explain the jewelry, its significance to her and her view. Now, when she's explaining her view, there are things that are going to come up probably that are unclear to me. And so I have more opportunities to ask, well, what do you mean by that? Or what do you mean by that? Now, I don't deliver those questions in a wooden way. I'm just adapting them for the circumstance, but it is essentially the same thing. So when somebody says, for example, 
uh, uh, do you Christians believe in evolution? All right. Um, well, uh, I could. I know I do not believe in the neo-Darwinian synthesis, uh, the the uh, the grand evolutionary molecules to man hypothesis. But actually, the word evolution has different definitions. Depends on what you mean by that. So if somebody says, yeah. well, do you believe in evolution? I mean, look at all scientists believe in evolution. You Christians, you're such losers. Do you believe in evolution? So then I'm going to ask the question. What, what do, you do you mean, mean by, by that? Yeah. What, what do you What do you mean by evolution? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. What do well, you mean things by change. Yeah. I I asked that I asked that too because I I am an evolutionary creationist and if somebody asks me do you believe in evolution, they a lot of people think evolution is synonymous with atheism. So if I say yes, I could be implicitly denying Christ. So I'm like, what do you do you mean sure. atheism? I'm no, I do not affirm that. So that's that. So I I'm have, curious, Evan. Yeah. I, I just have a quick question for you, though. I mean, because some people will take evolutionary creationism to be a contradiction in terms. So when you say evolutionary creators, what are you getting at when you say that? Uh, I mean that God used evolution in. Uh, he providentially ordered the process towards his envisioned goals. Okay. I've heard that before. I'm, uh, yeah. But I'm curious about exactly what you think God did how did he intervene to use the evolutionary process in order to accomplish his goals okay now you don't have to answer that all okay. i'm doing at this point is i'm role-playing the tactical game plan this is a perfect example of uh we actually differ on this particular point but i'm not taking you to task for it i'm I'm giving an example of the questions I would ask of someone who offered a thought like that to get more clarification for me. And neither of those questions took exception with your view, but they were asking for more detail of what it meant and how it worked. OK, this is a perfect uh. example of using Columbo number one in what might be considered a very controversial kind of circumstance. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Okay. I was I was about to answer I was about to answer that too. I'm glad you stopped me. Otherwise, we would have gone off on a rabbit trail. No. Yeah. And I didn't want to <laughs> I didn't want to do that for your sake. But I did. I thought I'm thinking to myself. Oh, this is great. This is a great opportunity to kind of role play without you realizing it. You didn't even know what was going on. Yeah, I didn't. <laughs> yeah. But this is exactly how this works. I just asked two different what do you mean by that questions and i could have asked more detail about when you say well i said it sounds like a contradiction how is it not then you said hey, god used evolution to accomplish his goals okay i'm clear on that but what kind of evolution do you think that god used okay neo-darwinian synthesis or something maybe you'd say that okay now i got that but but uh, how did he use it what did he do so notice how each of these are questions that are asking you to be more precise about your view. And in asking these questions, I'm being a student of your view. Now, hopefully, when I do this in general, when a person has to be more precise about their view, um, it forces them to think through their view more carefully. Okay, and I suspect you've thought through your view uh, carefully, and so you're able to give uh, an accounting uh, of your views, but it turns out most non-Christians have not their view very, very carefully. And even when I ask somebody, you know, who holds the view, well, what, what did God actually do? They can't 
they, they, they don't have much to say about that, you know. And so all what what, you know, God used it is all, all the further they can go. And um, so this shows the applicability and the flexibility of this kind of approach to normal conversations, even between Christians on issues that they might disagree on. So so you have I mean, this is just first step. I, I didn't do anything fancy, no fancy footwork, no apologetics, no theology, no philosophy, nothing. All I was looking for was particular was clarification on your on, on your particular view. And uh, that's what any Christian can do, even if they don't go further, even if they don't get to the gospel. What are you doing? You're engaging in a pleasant conversation where you're getting an education about somebody else's view and then deciding whether or not you want to go further. And that was an example of it. Yeah. Uh, some sometimes yeah. people say, "What well, do you, you Christian, you take the Bible literally?" Well, that depends. Now, I I play a trick on churches when I get to this point, and I say, "Oh, by the way, in this church, you take the Bible literally." And they're all going, "Yeah." So, do you believe Jesus is a stick? <laughs> That's the John 15. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Okay. Well, no. Well. Okay, what happened? I asked the audience. You should have asked me a question. If I ask you, do you take the Bible literally? You should have asked me, what do you think, Evan? Yeah. What do what you do mean you... by literally? And exactly. I, I, I actually, I actually have a lot of non-Christians ask me, do you take the Bible literally? And I'm like, what do you mean by literally? Not, sure. not every single verse. I take it literally when I think that that's probably what the author intended. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And by the way, that's the right answer. I take it with the precision the author intended. It just, just depends. Do you take the sports page literally? You know, I just saw how who, I don't know who the Gophers are. The Gophers are just last week. I saw some team that are the, is it Minnesota Gophers? And it said like Wisconsin stomped the Gophers. And I thought that's a pretty good word picture because Gophers should be stomped. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? But. Well, do you take that literally? Did they? What do they smash these people? Were, were a bunch of dead, you know, mammals, you know, laying on the field? No, y you you take it the way the author seemed to intend it. That's the appropriate thing. But our point here, of course, is instead of blindly just affirming something that you don't realize what you're affirming, it's better to ask for more clarification when you're faced with a challenge. And if maybe some of your, your listeners are, are picking up, oh, gosh, this could really be a safety valve for me because if somebody thumps me on the chest and then challenges me with something, I don't know how to deal with it. Well, I don't have to deal with it right away. That's correct. What do you do? You ask for clarification. And when you do, that pushes the ball in their court and it gives you more time to think in addition to hopefully giving you more information about what they actually do mean. And you're forcing yeah. the critic to be more clear. And I can see how I, I, in my own personal experience, I often use the Columbo tactic to try to help avoid straw men, either on my part or on the part of the other yes. person. I don't want to affirm something. Like if they say, do you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity? Well, I'm going to ask, what do you mean by the Trinity? Because if they're thinking there's only one God and there are three gods, which is, incoherent mm -hmm. that's not what i believe and that's not what the doctrine of the trinity is so i that's want them right. to tell me what do you think the doctrine of the trinity is and then i'll tell you whether or not i believe that 
That's excellent. I mean, that is really because you're doing two things. You're doing a, actually more than that, but minimally, you're 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 in that case, you are protecting the other person from misrepresenting your view. That's the straw man you were talking about. And when the circumstances are reversed, you, you are trying to get clear on their view in, in whatever it happens to be in opposition to Christianity so that you don't misrepresent them when you're critiquing their view. And this is really good thinking. This is good epistemic habits, you know, uh, the, 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 the habits that you develop to know and to assess other points of view as to whether they're true or false. By asking questions, you get a clearer picture. In fact, um, a lot of people haven't thought about this, but um, this is actually the very first step of critical thinking. If you want to think critically about anything, you've got to get that thing clear in your mind. If you want to do critical thinking about the Trinity, all right, well, then what is that thing? In other words, what is it to the people who believe it? And not some distortion, like you suggested, not some mis misunderstanding what is the real thing. And once you get the real thing, now you're in a position better to assess something about it. But you got to get it in view first, and that's yeah. what the first question does. Yeah, and uh, I, like, I like to say, you know, we don't want to be like two ships passing in the night. We Before, before we can even pr proceed with the conversation, we got to be on the same – we got to make sure – we're using the same words in the same way because mm -hmm. otherwise we're just talking past each other and that that doesn't do anyone any good. Right, right, right. Yeah. So that's it. That's your first step uh, in the game plan. And by the way, your listeners might be thinking, well, I'm a little intrigued by this. I don't have the book yet, but I say, all right, uh, I mean, get the book. I hope you do that. But even if you don't, just try it out. Next person you talk to about spiritual things, just commit yourself to one step. And that one step is to understanding their view or understanding their objections to your view. Just tell them, you know, I'm not in a position to answer if somebody gives you a challenge back. Well, the Bible's been changed. Maybe somebody will say that. Okay. Um, here's what I want to know, though. Exactly what do you mean? Could you describe what you're talking about so I have a clear understanding of what your challenge is so that I can consider it? Or they'll say everything is relative or science is the only thing that gives true information about the world or, um, you know, the Bible was only written by men. All of these things have lots of ambiguities built around them and it's smart. It's good tactics and it's also uh, judicious thinking to get more clear on the challenge against us or the claim the other person has that's being used in a conversation. And you could do that with the question, what do you mean by that? Or some variation. So that's, that's a uh, step one. And step in chapter, one. in chapter four of your book, uh, your book is titled Columbo, uh, the is titled Columbo step two, the burden of proof. Tell our yes. listeners what that chapter is about. What is the, the second step of Columbo? Okay, so let's just say somebody has made a claim against you. They've said everything's relative. There's a way of saying it. Christians believe in objective truth or absolute truth. They put it different ways. But somebody, a critic, is going to say, well, everything's relative. Now, that's a way of saying the Christian's wrong, okay? And the first question is going to get clarification on what they mean by relative, 
Okay, and also what they mean by everything. That would be a good question, too. But if you're clear on that, it's not now your job to show that there is absolute truth in the world. You're clear on the charge or the statement, but that doesn't mean it's your job to refute it. This is where the second move or the second step of the game plan comes in. And I call that reversing the burden of proof, reversing the burden of proof. Now, what's the burden of proof? Burden of proof is the responsibility that somebody has to prove something, that is to give evidence for a claim. Well, who has that responsibility? And here's the rule. The person who makes the claim bears the burden. The person who makes the claim bears the burden. So if somebody claims something controversial, they say that something is so, well, it's not my job first to show that their claim is wrong. It is their job first to show that their claim is right. The habit, a lot of people like you and I, uh, Evan, who are a little more aggressive, you know, on these kinds of things, we want to show people what we know and why they're wrong, you know. Okay, but what we've done then is we've accepted the burden of, of disproof, so to speak, on our own shoulders, and we have given the other side a free ride. In other words, they get to say whatever they want, and then we got to do all the heavy lifting. No, 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 not yet. If somebody is going to make a claim that's controversial, I want to know the reasons why they think they're right. So in the first step, I'm getting clear on what the claim is. In the second step, I'm getting clear on the reasons they think their view is correct. I'm pushing the burden of proof back onto them. And this is where our second model Columbo question comes in. The first one, what do you mean by that? That's how we gather information. And the second is something like, now, how did you come to that conclusion? Now, what are your reasons for that? Okay, uh, there is no God. Well, what do you mean there is no God? It might mean that there's no guy in the clouds with a gray beard. Okay, well, I don't believe in that God either. They might mean uh, that there's no force of any kind in the immaterial realm. I, you know, okay, well, um, now I know. Okay, now, why do you think there is no God, personal being over the world? Curious. You must have a reason why you think there is no God. Just want to know. Yeah, so and that, notice- can, and that can be that can be helpful because then if they give you like you, their objections, then you because not everybody not everybody's a skeptic for exactly the same reason. Some people right. might get they might stumble over evolution or the problem of evil, or maybe they've just been hurt by a lot of Christians, and you want to know exactly what's tripping them up so you know kind of like a kind of like a doctor a physician you want to know what the kind of what the symptoms are so you can know what the disease is so you can treat it exactly no that's exactly right and so but in this case the patient gets to tell you the disease all right that's where the dissimilarity is but that's actually a strength for our part because now it's there for a turn to talk so notice what we've done so far just in these first two steps and incidentally these are the two steps that fulfill the promise that I made to give a game plan that will allow you to converse with confidence in any situation, no matter what. What do you mean by that? How'd you come to that conclusion? Okay. And when you, when you ask those questions, whatever pressure you might have been feeling as a Christian in the conversation is gone because it's not your turn to speak. 
you ask the question and it's their turn to speak in both cases. Okay, and if you're asking a question, you are not making any claims yourself. Therefore, you bear no burden of proof. You don't have anything to defend. I know some people, especially the more aggressive ones, are thinking, well, wait a minute. Don't you ever get to the gospel? Why don't you make your case? Well, there's a time for that, but not right here. This is my point. That's more advanced. Okay. All we're doing now is getting into the shallow end of the pool and we're maneuvering. And by the way, that's where I always start. I've been doing this for a long time, 47 years a Christian. And I mean, the book is 12 years old or 11 years old. And I, and I've been doing a lot longer than that. I always get into the shallow end of the pool. I always start out by getting clarification. And I'll tell you one of the reasons why not only does it give me two kinds of really important information, what their view is, and that helps me avoid misrepresenting it, the straw man you're talking about, Evan, and their reasons for it. Okay, now I've got something to work with if I want to go further. All right. But it forces them to think about two things, what they mean and why they believe it. Um, now, here's a secret. And you'll notice this the more you use this, Evan, uh, and so will your listeners. There's a lot of people who don't know what they believe and they don't know why they believe it, even though they've got a lot of confidence and they come into the conversation with their their they're, uh, what am I talking about? Like a ship sails filled with air. You know, once you start asking a few questions of them about their view, it becomes, this isn't always true, but a lot of times it becomes evident they don't know how to answer for their own view. And they yeah. are, and the wind goes out of their sails, you know, and you get what I call, and here's a 60s alert, I call it the Simon and Garfunkel response. These guys who wrote a book, back, I mean, a, a, they wrote a song back in 1966 called The Sounds of Silence. And that's <laughs> what you get. You get dead air when you ask them, what do you mean by that? Or how'd you come to that conclusion? It's amazing how often that happens. Yeah, I, I, I usually use that tactic. Um, like when I want to get into the moral argument, I sometimes just ask something. What people, why is... Why do right and wrong exist? Most of us just take the existence of good and evil, right and wrong for granted, and we sure. don't think we don't think what makes it what makes X good and Y evil. And uh, you know, they they may not believe in God, but they really haven't thought, well, what's what's the alternative? Yeah. Now and what they'll know. often say is they'll say it's obvious. All right. However, yeah. they're not answering your question. You didn't ask them how they knew it was right or wrong. That might be obvious. And of course, the question is, why would it be obvious to us? And the answer is from the Christian worldview, because we have moral intuitions that God has placed in our heart, you know, the conscience. But in any event, that's not the question. You asked what makes it right or wrong, not how do you know? And the what makes it, philosophers call that the grounding problem okay so i i could say how how do you how do you know to stop uh, at that intersection you say because there's a stop sign well that's how you know but what makes it an obligation to stop at the stop sign because the government put the stop sign there that's why oh now there's a different kind of issue now we know what makes it wrong to go through that intersection without stopping and appropriate authority has said it's wrong and signaled it 
with a stop sign? And that's the question you're asking, the grounding question. Yeah. We live in a universe that seems to be thick with morality. We're all aware of it. But what is it that makes the morality incumbent upon human beings? That's the question. Yeah. And a lot of people, they'll just say, well, it just is. Now, some people and others, you know, they have thought about it deep, uh, deeply and they'll appeal to things like moral Platonism or they'll just try to attack my view with the Euthyphro dilemma or something. But most of the time with just the average person who hasn't really thought about it, they'll just say, well, murder just is wrong. Okay, just is, so, but, that, but that's a tautology. So, yes, that's right. And I would ask the question then. So now this gets in a little bit to a combination of uh, number two and number three. But I said, but what if I said to you um, that, uh, let's see, I'm just trying to think, that it just is right for you to give me 10% of your income. How is my statement different from your statement? It just is. And you know, they're yeah. not going to be able to answer that, you know, because there is no difference. If there is no God and it just is, well, then anybody can declare anything to just be. And uh, and, and by the way, moral moral claims are very particular kinds of things. They're, they they represent obligations that we have. And uh, the uh, you mentioned moral Platonism. You know, if moral Platonism is true that there is a virtue called kindness, it doesn't follow because there's a virtue called kindness sitting up there in the moral in the the ideal realm somewhere that we are obliged to be kind. That's different. That's a command, and commands are given by individuals, by persons, and obligations are held between persons. We are not obliged just to nothing, just to an inert yeah. thing, you know, kind of and that's deal. One of the, that's one of the responses I usually give. I say even if uh, moral, you know, there are different moral values, moral duties, I use the Craigian distinction. Yeah, right. Um, I say even if kindness and cruelty existed as abstract ideas, why should I adhere to one instead of the other? Correct. That's, that yeah, you've it, got to get yeah. from the abstract to the command, and and that's the moral Platonists can't make that jump, and also command to humans. Why humans and not, you know, why uh, other yeah. creatures for that to matter? Use your, to use your stop sign analogy, it would be kind of like, well, even if a, even if stop signs just kind of grew naturally out of the ground, yeah, that wouldn't give you that wouldn't give you any obligation to stop at them. Exactly, exactly. Even if it said by accident, S-T-O-P, it doesn't turn out to be a command because there is no individual doing the commanding. But we know moral obligation is a kind of command that we ought to obey. So what worldview makes sense of that? Nothing in materialism can make sense of that, what I just described. Only um, uh, some kind of theism can do that. And there might be challenges people raise like Euthyphro and whatever, but those are answerable. I mean, those were answered, you know, almost 2000 years ago. So it's not like this is an insurmountable obstacle. And if, by the way, if Euthyphro isn't answerable and not everybody knows what we're talking about, but that's OK, then it turns out that there can be no morality because you're stuck in an infinite regress trying to justify morality if, if that kind of objection works. But we know this morality and the reason we know it is because there's a problem of evil that everyone, no matter where they live or when they lived, is aware of. OK, 
that transcends individual preferences. So there must be an objective moral standard in the universe. Yeah. And by the way, uh, if if there are any listeners here who don't know what the Euthyphro Dilemma is or how to answer it, uh, I did a whole two-part YouTube video series on the moral argument for God's existence. I advise you to go check that out. I've also talked about the moral argument on this podcast uh, much, much earlier. You can go to CerebralFaith.net, go to the podcast page, and scroll down a little bit. But the YouTube videos, I think, would be a little bit easier to find because I did those podcasts episodes back in early 2019 uh, I want to move on now um, you know so the first like the first seven chapters of your book uh, is just on focusing what we've been uh, harnessing what we've been talking right. about the Colombo tactic and uh, right. understand what it is why we should use it how it can be helpful um, and like I said in my experience I find myself using this tactic uh, sort of in a disproportionate ratio to the other ones um, just and I think I think just learning this one alone, it gives one a huge advantage in discussions. But uh, after this, you move on to a new tactic, and it has a rather morbid name, <laughs> the suicide tactic. Right, Tell our right. audience uh, what the suicide tactic is and how that can be helpful in discussions. Sure, and just a quick editorial comment. Um, it isn't like all the tactics are equal and you can use one more than the other if you like it. The Colombo tactic is a game plan. And so I would use the suicide tactic in conjunction with Columbo. That you use Columbo most of the time is a good thing in my view. So even if you're using suicide, you want to use Columbo to employ the suicide or taking the roof off or just the fax mem or any of the other tactics. The suicide is a very simple tactic, and it's been around a long time in concept. It's called a self-refuting notion. There are all kinds of ideas that people have raised in objection to Christianity that commit Harry Carey, to use another way of putting it. I mean, they self-destruct. And all our job is, is to recognize the self-destructive tendencies and then simply point it out. And if we can point it out with a question, then that's even better. Now, here's a quick example. Um, I might have even referred. Well, OK, somebody says everything's relative. I made a sideways reference to this a few moments ago but didn't explain it so what do you mean by relative standard question then they tell me what they mean all all knowledge is perspectival or something like that okay great wait i have another question what's that you said everything is relative right well what do you mean by everything well what do you mean what do you mean by everything everything means everything i said yeah but that's the problem if everything means everything isn't the statement itself everything is relative part of of everything yeah well then if it's true then your statement itself would be what according to the statement relative Rel exactly well that's a problem because if everything's relative then the statement itself must be relative which defeats the truthfulness of the statement OK, so it's self-destructive. Notice how I used Columbo. What do you mean by everything? So uh, to, to get there, getting more information. And then I might to cap it off. If everything is everything, it says, well, then the statement is part of everything. Right. And if everything is relative, then are you saying that your statement itself is not objectively true? It is only relative to you, true relative to you. OK, now that's the question employing the suicide tactic and he's got nowhere to go 
because the statement is self-refuting. It's much like the statement, you can't know anything unless science proves it. Okay, so my question is going to be somewhere along the line, do you think that's a true statement? Of course I do. I wouldn't have said it if it wasn't true. Okay, can you give me the scientific evidence that proves your statement true? Notice that uh, sounds of silence, Simon and Garfunkel right there, because there is no scientific evidence that proves that that's true. It's not a scientific statement. It's a philosophical statement about science. And so now I I see, I can see this. A lot of people don't see that right away, but I can see this because my training and my experience. And so I use, I can see it commit suicide. Then I use a question to exploit that to demonstrate to the person that their view is suicidal. It's self-destructive. So I don't have to do anything with it. They have just done the job for me. Okay. And it's amazing. Sometimes just people will just blink at you like they never thought about this before. Somebody says, you shouldn't be pushing your morality on me. And, and somebody said that to me. And I asked them, why not? Okay. So that's a, what do you mean by that? And they said, because it's wrong. All right. Well, all right. Uh, Is that your morality? What you just told me? Yeah, it is. Well, then why are you pushing your morality on me right now if you think it's wrong to do that? (laughs) Balls in their court, right? Yeah. That's my my favorite. One of my favorite examples is it is when people try to quote Jesus. They quote Matthew 7, 1. Yeah. uh, Don't judge. You must not. not, You must not judge. Judge not. And uh, because then what? you know, you shouldn't be judging people. And I say, well, why are you judging me for judging? Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. That's a, it's a self-refuting statement. And that's right. it's kind of that's kind of similar to you shouldn't push your morality sure. on anyone. And, and of notice- course, anybody to anybody who might be scared that Jesus is uh, Jesus made a self-refuting statement. He didn't. When you look at the context, he's right. you can see that he's saying, don't uh, don't judge hypocritically. If you've got that, if you've got a problem in your own life. Take the speck out of your own eye, and then you can get the log out of your brother's eye. But they just – a lot of people, they just look at that that one verse, judge not. You shouldn't be judging anyone, yeah. but, but in doing that, they're, they're making a judgment. Yeah. He's speaking to a group of highly critical people, the Jewish leaders, and they're the ones who have the log in their eye, and they're straining at the gnat, so to speak, to use another metaphor of Jesus, you know, but they're swallowing the camel, and that's the log in their own eye when they're poking at somebody else's eye. Yeah. So there's an example of the suicide tactic, and there's lots of examples. People say, well, there's no truth. Really? Is that true? There's a question. Balls in their court. What are they going to say? See, if it's true, it's false. If it's false, it's false. If it's true, it's false. The statement is false either way. It is what philosophers call necessarily false. And uh, there are lots and lots of things like that. So in the chapter on uh, suicide, I give a lot of examples of how that plays out. And um, there are more than many people realize. So uh, there are actually a number of different kinds of suicide that I, I think I have four different kinds. Uh, one is sibling rivalry suicide. This is when people raise two objections that contradict each other. And uh, so on the one hand, they'll say um, there is no objective morality. So they'll be arguing against any moral judgments made against them because morality is simply relative. Okay. <clears throat> it's up to the individual. Okay. I get that view. But then they're going to complain about the problem of evil a little while down the line. It's happened with a waitress 
many, many years ago, and I was having a conversation at the table. I said, do you notice what you just did? What? First you, first you say there is no morality, and then you say people violate morality, objective morality, by committing evil. So which one do you believe? There is morality or there isn't? Now, this is Columbo number three, and Columbo number three is when you're using questions to make a point. I see the problem in her view. She doesn't see it. I see it suicidal in a very particular way. I call that sibling rivalry. It's like children in rivalry with each other, these two competing aspects of her objection. And so I ask a question to expose the problem. It puts the ball back in her court, and now it's her job to solve her problem, not my job. Her job. Now, hopefully what she's going to see, and this is the goal, the goal isn't to make people feel bad or feel stupid or get a notch in your belt or anything. The goal is to help them to see that the ideas they hold are not sound. And that hopefully will will open them up to an alternative. Okay, and the alternative is what we offer, the truth of Christianity. So uh, there's some different examples about how the suicide tactic works in practice. Okay, so then we move on from a morbid sounding uh, t- <laughs> tactic name to one that sounds like something you would hear from a DJ at a party, taking the roof off. Oh. Tell our, tell our <laughs> listeners t- about taking the roof off. Okay, well, taking the roof off is a phrase that I got from uh, the late Francis Schaeffer, who had a big influence on my on my life. He's uh, He was the one who founded Labrie in Switzerland, um, and he died in the 80s, but uh, his books like The God Who Is There, or He Is There and He Is Not Silent, or um, Escape from Reason, which can now be bought in a companion, one volume from Crossway, really had a deep influence on my life. And part of what he argued is, is that human beings being made in the image of God um, live in God's world, and when they, when they hold views contrary to God's view, they are holding views that are inconsistent with reality, okay? And that has consequences. So taking the roof off is an attempt to demonstrate what the consequences are to a person who holds a view that's inconsistent with God. Now, the reason he uses the phrase taking the roof off is he's basically saying you take off like the roof. They they have found a safe place to hide, to be with their philosophy. What you want to do is remove the roof and let the cold wind blow down on them to help them to see the, the consequence, the despairing or foolish or contradictory consequence of their views. Now, others might know this tactic as a reductio ad absurdum, where you reduce it to the absurd consequences of the view. Some people just call it a reductio. Okay, so uh, I have an example uh, in the book. Those of us those of us who like to use fancy Latin words. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) I I say that I use the word just simply because there are people who know what a reductio is. And I'm saying we're we're kind of covering the same ground here uh, with uh, taking the roof off. So there was a this witch in Wisconsin I talked about earlier um, and I'd asked her about her her pentagram on her neck. She uh, she we ended up talking about abortion and she she is the one who characterized abortion as baby killing, even though she was pro-choice. She acknowledged it's baby killing. And um, and I said, well, what would be 
what would be a good just a legitimate justification for killing a baby? And she says incest. And then I said, okay, now here I'm going to take the roof off. I understand her view. And so I'm going to take her view for a little test drive and see where it leads. And what I'm going to show her is that if you drive this view uh, consistently, it's going to take you right over a cliff. Okay. So there must be something wrong with where you started if this is where the view leads. That's how reductios work. That's how taking the roof off works. So what I said to her is if I had a two-year-old standing next to me who had been conceived by incest, that's her criterion, then on your view, if I understand it correctly, I should be allowed to kill this two-year-old. Is that right? Now, two things are happening here. One is I'm getting clear on her view. Did I understand your view correctly? Now, I did understand it correctly. I wasn't misrepresenting it at all. But at least she had an opportunity to correct me if I did. But I didn't understand it. She made no complaint. But she was in another fix. Now I was causing her to consider the consequence of her view. And that is it results in something that is obviously wrong. If you're going to justify baby killing based on infantis, I'm sorry, uh, incest, then this is going to justify infanticide, which most people still think is wrong. So therefore, that kind of justification for abortion couldn't be a good one if it's also a legitimate justification for something we know obviously to be wrong now i just stepped out the reasoning there but you don't have to step it out most people can figure this out it just happens kind of an instant you see what's going on so i I took the roof off i want to i want to i want to step in and and that because that reminds me of a conversation on abortion i had recently uh where someone said well it's okay to you know kill the fetus because they can't they're not conscious yeah Mm -hmm. well i said well, people in comas aren't conscious. Does that mean I can just go and slit their throats? Right, right. <laughs> so, yeah, so there, that's you're taking the roof off there. So also that night when your friend goes to sleep, he is not going to be conscious. Is it okay to kill people when they're asleep? They're not no. conscious. <laughs> okay. Well, see, this is what you want them yeah. to answer. Okay, then if that's not a good reason to kill people when they're asleep, not being conscious, why is it a good reason to kill an unborn human being who is not completely conscious? Now, it's their job to answer that. Notice that we're using the taking the roof off tactic, just like we use the suicide tactic, by employing Columbo questions. And so these are all fully integrated. What the different techniques or the different tactics help you to see is a flaw or a mistake or a liability in a point of view and then allow you, the when you have the game plan in, in place, to uh, hopefully you can ask a question that will exploit the problem that you see based on the other tactic. Very good stuff. So um, what, is, what is the Rhodes Scholar tactic? Well, the Rhodes Scholar um, is a tactic you use when people say something like, well, scholars – agree on xyz or whatever it is so you are against what the scholars believe Uh, evolution is a good case because uh the the vast majority of of uh of uh 
uh, scientists believe in the Darwinian model, okay, the neo-Darwinian synthesis, the molecules demand hypothesis, uh, um, natural selection based on on genetic mutation, okay. So um, that most scientists believe it is not relevant to me or, or any other fact in it, it, that's being asserted. What's important, that just educates you, that, 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 that tells you what, what they believe, but it doesn't allow you to assess it, okay? Now, certainly, some people are, are in a very unique position to make a judgment that most people aren't in a unique position to make. Uh, I, I acknowledge that. This is where expert witness comes in, okay? But when an expert witness comes into a trial, he still gets cross-examined. And this is what we ought to do regarding these claims. We don't want to know what the mass of people believe. I mean, that's borderline uh, a fallacious way of thinking uh, card called argumentum ad populum. You, you, the, yeah. Most people believe this kind of deal. What you want to get to is the reasons why they believe it. That's the key. Most historians ex who of this period accept the historical claims of the New Testament. I mean, it's good history. Even Bart Ehrman, for goodness sake, a critic of Christianity, a specialist in ancient documents like this and a New Testament history, has written a book on G the historical Jesus. He he's using the documents as historical sources. However, most of them don't believe the resurrection took place. Huh. Why do you believe the details of the life of Jesus written in the Gospels, but you don't believe in the resurrection. That's the question that needs to be asked. And they even, the they, they even accept some of the, you know, I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of Gary Habermas. You know, yeah. they accept even some of the claim, some of the, the, the minimal facts. Minimal facts, right, that right. Would, you know, like they believe that the disciples uh, saw him or thought they saw him. Uh, Seventy-five percent believe the tomb was empty. Some of them they believe Paul had an experience, but yeah, they most of the resurrection. Yeah, yeah, and that but would, they don't put it together. They lead, don't connect the dots. Yeah, that would lead to a yeah, that would lead to a Columbo tactic question. Why why do you not think that this is the best explanation? Exactly, and here's the answer: because resurrections don't happen. That's the answer. Now, of course, that's circular. Because that's the very thing that's in question that you're marshalling evidence to establish. But they have already concluded that resurrections don't happen, so they cannot come to that conclusion. But you see, that's a metaphysical bias that they're bringing to the discussion that is not a legitimate conclusion from the facts. Okay, so now because we've gone further and looked at the why question of the scholar, now we're able to assess whether their why is adequate. The evidence is adequate. And all in this case, what we've uncovered is a bias, an unreasonable bias, because it doesn't it's not consistent with the facts. It's it's just brought in that they put it there and that's it. It's an unreasonable bias um, that that uh, that they use to assess the facts. And so the reason that most scholars don't believe in the resurrection has nothing to do with the evidence. It has everything to do with their own philosophic predisposition. And that's good to discover. And you'll find there's a lots of times when scholars say X, Y, Z, but you don't have the reasons why they say it. And that's what you need to get in order to assess the claim. And that, by the way, is the Rhodes Scholar tactic. 
Yeah, I, I, I usually tell people, look, if, a, if most scholars or most experts believe something, that's a good reason to take it seriously, to investigate it and right. you know, look into it, because, you know, there must be some, you know, maybe there's a good reason why most people accept it, but that doesn't automatically make it true. And with right. my own beliefs, uh, theologically, uh, politically, or otherwise, there are some, uh, my, some of my views are in a very, very tiny minority, Others are in a very, very large majority. Some are somewhere in the middle. But I came to all of my views by examining the arguments for and against them. Sure. I don't. Re I like to say I don't. I don't care about a head count. You know, head, head counts. You know, I don't care how many. You know, if I'm going against the majority or if I'm uh, going with the mainstream, what does the evidence say? Right. Right. Yeah. It's not a mere head count. I mean, the fact is, most scientists don't think that Thor makes electricity. And lightning, right? Well, they're right on that. Thor doesn't. We know better, and this is easy to find out. But as to whether God's responsible for the uh, the the language of the on the DNA double he, double helix, well, show try to show me. No, God's not responsible. All right, then what can you tell me about a naturalistic process that can produce a language that gives instructions to build things? Because that's exactly what we face inside the DNA double helix. And so then that becomes a question that is incumbent upon them to answer. And uh, even if there are scientists and everybody believes that, uh, that, that this is a chance process, if they can't demonstrate how such a thing is reasonable to believe, then they haven't done their job. Yeah, or or um, or my favorite design argument is the the fine tuning argument. Yeah. Like they'll say, oh well, it's the multiverse. Well, how do you know there's a multiverse? Yeah, there's, there's actually no empirical or, evidence for the multiverse. Or, and or I'll uh, yeah I'll, I'll point that out, or I'll take the roof off, and I'll show the I'll tell them about the invasion of the Boltzmann brains. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. <laughs> And hey, by the way, I, by the way, the listeners, if you don't know what that is, I got a whole video on YouTube on the fine tuning <laughs> argument. You could go check it out. Hey, you know, I just listened to something that Bill Craig did yesterday. I listened to it and I got a new um, piece of information about a response to the multiverse, because if the multiverse uh, and for those who are not up to speed, go and listen to Evan's uh, teaching on this. But if the multiverse is true, um, then that means that when somebody um, spins the roulette wheel and it hits number 33 that they voted on every single time in a row for 100 times, that is not evidence for cheating. Because if there is a multiverse, uh, if that concept is notion, then there, if that notion is plausible, if that's a good notion, then there is some universe in the infinite array of universes that are available, the universe ensemble in which somebody hits 33 on a roulette table a hundred times in a row. That means that nothing in this particular world could ever be called improbable or impossible or suspect because it's going to happen in some universe when you have an infinite number of universes, according to this theory. Yeah, I have used that response before, and one of the like one of the lines I use at the end of my response is not only does it rule out design on the divine level, uh, design inferences on the divine level, it rules out design inferences on the human level. Mm. This com this MacBook I'm working on could have been the result of a tornado striking a junkyard and tossing a bunch of pieces together, and, yeah. and it just happened to form a MacBook Pro. 
Yeah, and this is the universe where that happened. It's not going to happen in any other other universes, but when you got an infinite number of opportunities, sure, of course. Um, anyway, there are lots of problems with that that broader argument, but um, this was a new one that I'd learned, and I was kind of tickled to hear yeah. a new one. You're onto it, man. And also, if you can do the ontological argument, you're a better man than I am. You know, oh, I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I do. I I love I love it. Uh, I, a lot of people, I I try I. I don't really use it that that much unless I know the person is kind of philosophically minded because it's kind of it's kind of weird. It's kind of it's, it's, philosophical, right? It's kind of it's kind of weird if you don't know. But I think if you I think I think it can be broken down uh, yeah. and, and a person can get it. But yeah. if you just go off right off the bat with saying, oh, maximally great being in some yeah. possible worlds exists in every possible world, they're going to be like, what are you talking about? Yeah, 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 sure. So well, that's yeah, what I, I say. Yeah, I think it can I got be. I a master's degree in philosophy from J.P. Moreland, <laughs> and I still say, "What are you talking about when it comes yeah, to that?" I think, anyway. it, yeah, I think it can be broken down. I don't. I think. I think some philosophers don't do a good, a, a good job of that. I always do. I always might make my material. I like to say with uh, with the eighteen year old version of me in mind. Uh-huh. I, it's like it's like when I make my material, I if, envision myself back when i didn't know any of this stuff uh-huh. and uh that's that's why i i get a lot of good feedback they're like you know you make your stuff really accessible yeah. and i i really like hearing that because i try that's good well you throw the ball so people can catch it and that's key yeah so uh tell our listeners about the steamroller tactic i think this one is very important because uh i you know i know what it is i'm not going to tip my hand but i see it's in theology and apologetics in politics i mean just turn on one of these news programs yeah. oftentimes when you have two people who disagree with each other they both start flapping their gums simultaneously <laughs> <laughs> happens in, happens in marriages too okay uh, steamroller is a defensive tactic meant to defend you uh, oneself against people who interrupt constantly Okay, Uh, they steamroller over the top of you. And the idea is you get one. They they offer a challenge. You start talking about it and they don't like what they hear. They object to something that's a piece of your your response and they jump in and they interrupt and take you in a different direction. Then you follow that rabbit trail and uh, you don't get far because they jump in and drag you in another direction. Bang, 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 bang. You can't even get an explanation out because they are jumping in and they are interrupting. And interruption is the chief characteristic of a steamroller. All right. Now, steamrollers usually can be controlled. And actually, this technique that I teach is a three-step technique, and and it does teach you one way or another how to manage the steamroller. But um, the first step is just simply stop them and negotiate. So stop them. So if you were steamrolling me, Evan, if I I was just trying to explain something that you disagreed with, okay, and you just jumped in and said, well, what what about, what about, you know, kind of thing. And I I would say something, hold on just a minute, Evan, I'm not quite finished. I just want to finish this thought. Is that okay with you? And then I'll, I'll let you come back with your counter. Notice, notice I am, I am pausing the discussion. I'm using a little body language. I'm speaking nicely. I'm making a request and I'm giving you a chance to respond. So is it okay if I finish the thought? And you can say, okay. Yeah. And then and then I start talking. Now, if you jump in again, I'm going to say, wait, wait. Yeah, I'm not quite done. Now, of course, if you're the Christian in the circumstance, you can't talk forever because this person is just 
chomping at the bit. And sometimes they're not listening. And I'll even joke with them a little bit. Wait a minute. Okay, are you listening? Because it's important you listen to the question you ask. You, you want to hear it, right? And I kind of talk like that. But I'm trying to calm things down. A gentle answer turns away wrath. That's in Proverbs. A gentle answer turns away wrath. Harsh word, that stirs up anger. You don't want that. So we're being gentle at this point. And in most cases, when you gently point out what really is an impolite way of responding to you, people are going to uh, settle down, relax, especially if you keep your word and give them a chance to get in. Okay. Uh, Now, if that doesn't work, that's the first step. Stop them. The second step I call shame them. (laughs) And it's very much like the first step, but it's you more directly address the uh, the rudeness of the person's interruption. So if Evan, you were doing this a bunch of times to me and we'd already done the first thing and you kind of broke trust with me on that, then I say, Evan, wait a minute. Or I might not say, wait a minute. I might wait until you stop talking because some people you can't get them to stop. Then you wait till there's a pause. I said, Evan, before we go any further, it's really hard for me to have this conversation. And the reason is, is every time I try to respond to a legitimate question, you cut me off. Okay, so here's the deal. Um, I'll be happy to answer your question if you don't cut me off. When I'm done, it'll be your turn and I'll be polite to you and I won't cut you off. Is that okay with you? Okay. now there's different versions of this that I give in the book. Some are more aggressive than others, and it just depends on the kind of steamroller you're dealing with. But notice in the second case, I'm directly addressing the impolite action and I'm making a very specific request for a certain kind of conduct. And I'm giving that person a chance to agree or disagree. Okay, so you stop them. If that works, fine. If it doesn't, then you shame them. And if that doesn't work then you leave them. All right. (laughs) Stop them. Shame them. Leave them. And now if you're married to the person, then you just leave the discussion. You're not leaving the relationship, (laughs) obviously. But not everybody deserves an answer. And when we were talking a little earlier about Matthew chapter seven, uh, judge not lest you be judged, Jesus talks about the problem with throwing pearls before swine in that passage and uh, throwing what is holy to dogs. Okay, and they're going to turn and tear you to pieces. They're going to trample it underfoot and tear you to pieces. When you feel like you're in a kind of conversation like that, forget about it. Just say, look, you know, we disagree on this. This conversation is not going well. I'll let you have the last word and then we're done. That's how you close it off. Boy, they, I, I, this tactic would have made that first presidential debate a whole lot better (laughs) (laughs) because Donald Trump and Joe Biden and Chris Wallace, man, that was that was a fiasco. That was a mess. That's (laughs) right. I I didn't watch it because I just can't take that kind of stuff. It bothers me so much. But things calm down, I I guess, the other debates. But it it does. You know, this also um, and this is actually a good example, uh, whether or not the president acquitted himself on the on the uh, on the merits or not, turns out to be for many people irrelevant if his manner is unpleasant. Okay, and vice versa, if the same thing was true of Joe Biden, I think that from what I understand, the president was much more aggressive and it didn't help him. And uh, in the same way, even with people that agreed with him, you know, um, in the same way, when Christians are nasty and we're the steamrollers, that doesn't help our view. This hurts us. 
Um, and that's why somebody said, why you get the other guy the last word in the end? I said, because it's polite and it shows my confidence in my own view. When I say, okay, we disagree, we're not getting very far in this conversation, this arrangement's not working out, I'll let you have the last word and we'll be done. Go ahead. And then yeah, I let them talk. Yeah. People yeah, listening, lo- they're yeah, going to really lo- take take a lot back from that. Yeah, a lot of people, we, we got to remember when we're, when we're thinking of obeying 1 Peter 3.15, we got to obey the second half. Not just the first half. That's right. Always be ready to give a defense for to anyone who asks you for the hope that you have, but do it with gentleness and respect. And That's you know, right. I think we've all we've all failed at this from time to time. I know I certainly have, but I at least I hope I'm a lot better than I used than I used to be. Not not like when I was uh, young and uh, first starting out. But uh, we got we got to be. We gotta be gentle and respectful, you know, like right. like uh, like Kokel was saying with uh, uh, the the proverbs, you know, a, a harsh word stirs up hang anger, not hanger. <laughs> <laughs> Empty stomach stirs up hanger. Yeah, uh, a harsh right. word stirs up anger. A gentle word calms people. Right, turns away wrath. No, it turns away right. wrath. By yeah. the way, proverbs has a lot of stuff to say about how we engage, you know, and that's just one that came to mind then. So. Uh, that's all part of it. That's all part of the tactical approach that we are we are being uh, good ambassadors for Christ, not just with an artful method, that's tactics, but with an attractive manner, and that's absolutely critical. Now, let, what advice would you give a Christian uh, when they're when they're faced with a question or objection to Christianity they can't answer? Let's say that they do the Colombo tactic. They they find out what the other person means. They ask them, you know, how 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 did you come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or there is no God? And then they don't, you know, they don't know how to, how to respond. Like, are you saying they don't know where to go after those first two questions or a challenge is offered to them? That's beyond them. The second, yeah. Like the, like what if they give like an argument against, um, let's just say like the, the problem of evil, they give the, the typical Epicurean version Mm -hmm. and the Christians are just there. Like, um, I, I don't know, you know, well, if God's all powerful and all. Yeah, yeah, right, right. Well, you know, this is where it's entirely legitimate for the Christian to say, I'm not prepared to answer that right now, but here's what I'd like you to do. And this I call uh, getting out of the hot seat and it's in the book and there's detail on this and uh, getting out of the hot seat is the hot seat is where you find yourself when you're in the circumstance that you just described, Evan, and that is you don't know how to deal with the challenge. Okay, so, of course, now you feel like out of control. The other guy's got the jump on you, so to speak, and you're thinking, now what? Well, you don't want to be out of control. The tactical game plan is meant to keep you in control of the conversation. So this is where you practice what I call kind of a conversational Aikido. That is, you don't resist them. You use their force in your favor. All right. And then you say you say something like, well, you know, that's a challenge that I have not really thought through enough to be able to give you a good answer. But I wonder if you could do me a favor. Uh, And here's the way I usually characterize it, Evan, uh, to an audience. And all they have to do is think of these two categories, but they can just enfold those categories in the conversation in any way they want. And that is, please help me be clear on what your view is and why you believe it, what it is, and why you believe it. Now, notice that those are the first two Colombo questions. So we're just retracing our, our steps a little bit. 
but we're doing it in a different way. We're acknowledging we can't answer the challenge, but help me to understand the challenge better. Okay. Now, in some challenges, not, you know, why you believe it may not apply, but, but in general, keep those categories in mind. And if somebody's raising the Epicurean challenge to God's existence based on the problem of evil, um, and you, you don't know what to do with that, then, then, um, this is where you would use this tactic, this getting out of the hot seat tactic and say something like, you know what, I, that's a, Boy, a lot of people ask that question, and frankly, I got to do some more thinking on that myself. But I wonder, to help me think about it better, can you articulate as carefully as you can what you think the problem actually is and why this is a problem for Christians? Okay. Now, if they're careful, they're going to say, well, there is a contradiction in your view. And the contradiction is that you believe in a good and powerful God. Okay. If he's good, he would want to get rid of evil. If he's powerful, he'd be able to get rid of evil. But clearly, evil exists in the world. And therefore, he's either not good or he's not powerful or he doesn't exist at all. That's the argument. Okay. And and the Christian should be taking notes at this point. Now, uh, you know, Evan, and I know uh, that there are lots of problems with that challenge. It, factual, it actually is not even a sound argument. It doesn't it, it does not even put together in a way that creates uh, a genuine logical problem for Christians. Uh, but there are different ways of responding to it. But at least at this point, what you've done is bought some time. You've shown you respect the other person's point of view and you're not standing there flat footed like duh. If what you do is say, please explain your view and then let me think about it. Well, those are the magic words. Let me think about it. Because when you say, let me think about it, you have no further obligation to def- to uh, address the view. You've already acknowledged that you can't do that. Okay. Now it's up. Uh, now you can on your own at your leisure um, when the pressure is off. You can uh, go to one of Evan's podcasts or you can go to Standard Reason or you can go to a book or you can go to a multitude of places available now to help you deal with that issue. And when you're ready, when you're armed, then you understand the challenge and how to deal with it. Then you want to think about how can I address this in the future by using questions? That's Columbo number three. And then you're ready next time around. Yeah, and uh, I was I've, I was talking with someone over email, um, a man named Joshua. He, he's you know he's young. He wants to get into apologetics, but he says I'm feeling I'm just feeling so overwhelmed because I feel like I have to know everything. I have to know the and I'm I'm like and I I gave him some of that some of that advice and I told him that even I you know even I still run into that because I don't you know like I. You know, someone asked, someone brought up some objections uh, to the penal substitution view of the atonement, and I, I told them, look, this is just not, this is not an area I've really studied as in depth, and you know, um, there are other theories of the atonement. Maybe, maybe those are right. What I do know is that Jesus died on the cross, and that accomplished my salvation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I. You know, and I and I was telling that to the agnostic I mentioned earlier. I was dialoguing with uh, for two and a half years. I'm like, you know, I've got uh, overall overall I've got really good reasons to think Christianity is true, mm-hmm. and this this isn't really you know the fact that I don't know how to answer this. You know, um, maybe the view is wrong. Maybe some mm-hmm. other model of the atonement is correct, or maybe there's an answer I just haven't thought of yet. But mm-hmm. it's not it's not a make or break issue for me. 
Yeah. And and I also told him, you know, just say, hey, give me some time to think about it. I, mm-hmm. I do this with non-Christians because, you know, you if, if people are presented with new information, you got to digest that stuff. Whether you come to agree with them later or mm-hmm. find that, you know, they're wrong, you got to have time to sleep on it. You can't mm-hmm. expect them to like, hey, I, get, I just gave you a new argument for God's existence. What do you think? Um, mm-hmm. Well, gosh, I never heard of, of all this fine tuning stuff before. I, I don't. You know, they got to they got to chew on it. And so I, you know, if they're reasonable people, they will let you do that. If you say, let me think about it, uh, you know, they'll they'll let you do that. Yeah, that's right. By the way, most people have thought about the fine tuning argument, argument, even if they haven't heard it as such. And this is why they make a, a consistent reference to a different person who governs the universe. It isn't father. It's mother. Mother wow. Nature. Did you ever think about that? Mother, why do people constantly make reference to Mother Nature? It's because they're, they, they, they anthropomorphize nature sp- specifically because it has the evidence of design, which, by the way, Richard Dawkins acknowledges that one of the world's most famous atheists in his book, uh, The Blind Watchmaker, because he starts that book by saying the biological realm is a complex world that gives the appearance of having been designed for a purpose. So even Richard Dawkins acknowledges the appearance of design. And when people say, look at the wonders of Mother Nature, they are acknowledging the appearance of design by invoking a person, Mother instead of father. And we're in a position to say, yeah, you're right about your intuition about nature, except for it's not mom, it's dad. Okay. So we've, we've, uh, hopefully we've given our listeners, um, some things that they can, uh, chew on and digest and hopefully it will make them better witnesses for Christ. Um, and if you want to, if you want to listen or, or read the, this uh, the book you can get the book on Amazon in That's paperback right. and Kindle, and it it's also it's also available in uh, in audiobook format. Is it or is it yes. is it just the is it just the old version or the is the new version? No, no, I I actually read the new version, so they're going to hear my voice reading my book when they get the tenth anniversary edition, which is the one they should get because it's a lot longer. Yeah. And see that little red thing right there? That's that's 10th anniversary edition. The yeah. older one doesn't have that red thing there, and it's also not as thick. So I think it's pretty much the 10th anniversary edition is the only one available anymore. The other ones are sold out. So, uh, wow. But Amazon's a good way to get it. You can go also go to STR, stand to reason, str.org, and buy it there. And that helps us out a little bit too. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, get the book Tactics, um, read it, uh, use it as a training manual because that's exactly what it is. Um, and before I cut off the podcast, I want to give a shout out to my patrons, uh, James Godomsky, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Austin Long, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to become a supporter of the ministry, go to patreon.com slash cerebral faith. Uh, Greg Kogel, thank you for coming on the podcast and talking about this. You're so welcome, Nathan. Evan, I called you Nathan now, so you know I'm mixed up. Evan, thank you. It was good talking with you today. Yeah, and thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. Uh, Next week, I will be starting a new series called Christmas Apologetics, and it's going to be – we're going to be – all throughout December, we're going to be tackling a different issue 
about Christmas. It's going to start out with Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy. Uh, we're going to be talking about whether Christians should even celebrate Christmas. Like, isn't it pagan? Doesn't have pagan origins? It's not in the Bible, right? Then I'm going to have Lydia McGrew on to talk about the reliability of the birth narratives. Going to have Hugh Ross to talk about what he thinks the uh, the Christmas star is, and I'm going to just have a monologue episode where I talk about the logical coherence of the incarnation. So come ba come back next week for a whole new series. Peace out and God bless.